Good evening. I've got to confess, nobody really came up to me as I was walking up to the sacristy with any funny stories. So I don't have one for you tonight. Please forgive me. Just to kind of recap into what we, what we talked about last time, for those of you, first time this is, we're talking about discernment of spirits. And last time we met, we talked about the first four rules. Now the first four rules were essentially instructive rules. And they were instructive rules based on, and what they showed us is basically what discernment of spirits looks like. Now, the first rule, as we talked about last time, was all about somebody going from mortal sin to mortal sin. Somebody, if you will, headed in the direction of hell and not of heaven. And what that looks like and what the spirit, the evil spirit, works and what, how he works on that person who goes in that direction. And it's an encouraging voice. Also, the good spirit, if for somebody who goes in that direction, is a more of a, the voice is more of a biting voice. It's more, it attacks the conscience, it attacks the person's thought. It kind of gets into, it kind of stops there. It does the best it can to stop them what they're doing. It's the greatest act of mercy that God can possibly do to stop a child as he seeks to run off of a cliff. That's at the end of the day all it really is. Whenever we look at the first rule and see how St. Ignatius says that the spirit bites the conscience and, and, and stops him and really pricks at the conscience using the process of reason. The second rule, of course, is about all about somebody going toward God, seeking to rise from good to better, to something even higher, something even greater, something even happier than where they are at that present moment. And at that, this, whenever somebody's in that state, the rules flip. The rules, the, 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 excuse me, the spirits flip, the roles flip. And it's the evil spirit who seeks to bite. It's the evil spirit who seeks to set. It's the evil spirit who seeks to stop somebody in their tracks because he doesn't want them to go any further. Doesn't want them to go to heaven. Doesn't want them to experience that eternal bliss that we're all looking for. Doesn't want us to fulfill our wildest desires. And it's the good spirit who comforts who, who gives us that consolation and encourages us on this journey to keep us going. The third rule is a description of spiritual consolation. Notice that this is a consolation that comes deep within the heart. It's not a consolation that we receive after eating ice cream, after having a long conversation with a friend, or anything of that sort after maybe doing something well. That's what we call a non-spiritual consolation. The spiritual consolation is a deeper consolation. It's a consolation of the heart where we are inflamed with love of the Creator, love for the Holy Spirit, love for what Jesus has done for us. That is what the third rule is all about, spiritual consolation. But it's not just an inflaming of love, but it's also a growth in boldness, a growth in courage, a growth in strength to fight down the kingdom of darkness and move toward God. The good spirit in this situation is all about filling us with virtue. That is in a sense of being a manly person. Somebody who can fight. Somebody who's not discouraged by any obstacles that Satan might throw at him. And the fourth rule, the fourth rule is simple. Spiritual desolation. It's how the evil spirit works on those who are going to heaven. And how the evil spirit seeks to, to bring one down 
tend to make them lazy, tepid, sad, as if separated from his Creator and Lord. Notice St. Ignatius doesn't say he is separated from his Creator and Lord, but says that it is as if he is separated from his Creator and Lord. It makes him so that doubt, that doubt that God has abandoned him in his struggle and has left him all by himself. Those are the first four rules. It very much describes how the spirits work on the different souls based on what direction the souls are headed. It's very, very plain and simple. That being said, if the first four rules are instructive rules, instructive rules, then the later rules are normative rules, rules in which you and I can take action in, rules in which we can then go forth and fight. So let's look at our first rule in which you and I can take up arms and do battle against this desolation. The fifth rule, rule five. If you have your sheets, it's right here. If you don't have a sheet, there's some right there at that table. Let's see what we got. The fifth. In time of desolation, never, in time, excuse me, in time of desolation, never to make a change but to be firm and constant in the resolutions and determination in which one was the day preceding such desolation, or in the determination in which he was in the preceding consolation. Because as in consolation, it is rather the good spirit who guides and counsels us. So in desolation, it is the bad with, with, with whose counsels we cannot take course to decide rightly. As in consolation, it is rather the good spirit who guides and consoles us. So in desolation, it is the bad with whose counsels we cannot take a course to decide rightly. Now let's look at some of the language here in Rule 5. The first major word that he says is change. In a time of desolation, never make a change. It says here never to make a change, but you can sum summarize it, never make a change. I'm not really sure who translated these rules exactly, but never make a change. And if we're honest, that can be a little bit hard to swallow. What do you mean never make a change? And if we, if we really need to answer the question, we have to make a few distinctions. What St. Ignatius is talking about, whenever he says never make a change, he's referencing changes with a direct part to do with our spiritual lives and pursuit of God's will. These changes have everything to do directly with our spiritual lives. So whenever I say, whenever, or excuse me, whenever St. Ignatius says, in time of desolation, never make a change, he's not talking about changing your shoes. He's not talking about changing some words you may have written on a simple text message. He's not talking about those non-spiritual things. He's talking about spiritual things, rather. And it's not just any spiritual thing. What he's talking about is proposals. And this is what he means by a proposal. A pro proposal is a, a plan we've made, a kind of idea that we've had that had directly affects our spiritual life. 
a great example is we've all, which is Lent. So we've all either agreed between us and God or us in a community to either give up something or take on something else or both. These are spiritual resolutions. These are spiritual proposals. And if we've done that and if we made those spiritual proposals in a time of consolation, in a time where we weren't in that funk that Satan's trying to deceive us in, then that is the proposal that St. Ignatius is referencing in these rules. Whenever he says, don't change those proposals, it's those that we're talking about. The perfect example, of course, is being, say, a, a Lenten resolution. And what he's saying is that if the devil comes at you, chances are he's going to try and get you to stop doing these Lenten resolutions. Chances are he's going to get you to try and stop doing these spiritual proposals. The proposal you maybe agreed to yourself, maybe go to Mass every week. Excuse me, not every week. Hopefully you're doing that. Go to Mass every day. Or maybe pray a rosary every day. Or maybe fast from sweets. Or fast from meat. Or fast from seafood. Something really hard to do in Louisiana. Whatever it might be, those are spiritual proposals. And yet, how many times in Lent do you and I experience this desolation where we think, you know what, it sure would be nice just to miss Mass this morning. It was a long day yesterday, kind of tired, might need a little bit more sleep. Maybe I'll just, you know, take it easy today. I'll go tomorrow. And then we feel like awful the rest of the day. Or, you know, that, that strawberry shortcake looks pretty good. Now, by the way, if any of you made strawberry shortcake or, or cake of in general during Lent, that's a very terrible thing. You should not do that. That's very mean and that tempts people. So as a rule, don't make cake during Lent. Anyway, neither, neither here nor there. My point being is how many of us look and see this nice chocolate cake or the strawberry shortcake or the strawberry cheesecakes, three of my absolute favorites, and think, you know what? I don't want to be rude. You know, the person who slaved away at this might be offended if I didn't eat this cake. Might be hurt if I didn't go on ahead. You know, it just maybe took like a little bit of a nibble. No big deal. It's okay. I mean, besides, it's been a long day. I need my energy. And there's nothing quite so energy filling as a bunch of chocolate cake, right? So why not indulge a little bit? And then what happens? We eat the cake and we feel awful. And, lo and behold, to make us feel even worse, the host that's offering us the cake wouldn't have given to us had they had known that we were giving up sweets. So it was a lose both ways. You see, the simple example is how the devil is trying to work on us. How the evil spirit in a time of desolation is trying to get us to break rule five. Never, ever, ever make a change. Never make a change to your spiritual proposal that you initially made. Otherwise, you will be in bad news and, and you will feel really, really bad later. Now, let me make a point here. Whenever it comes to this idea of never, ever making a change, we need to remember the distinction between spiritual and non-spiritual. 
what we're talking about here is purely a spiritual proposal, not a non-spiritual proposal. So for instance, if, if you're in an, a, a bad relationship, not talking about a marriage necessarily, but just a relationship, whether it's a friendship or whether, it's, whether you're dating somebody or whatever, and it's really, really, really south, it's clear this is not going to work out. Don't call on rule five. That's not what, that's not what St. Ignatius is getting at. You could very easily say, for my mental health, for maybe even my physical health, I got to get out of here. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to hang them up. Thank you, but no thank you, I'm gone. That is perfectly okay. And that might actually be a decision done in consolation. So whenever he's talking about never ever make a change, we're not talking about non-spiritual changes necessarily. It could be the case that, that non-spiritual changes need to be, you need to hold firm in those resolutions. But that's not a rule that goes across the board. Sometimes you do need a change, sometimes you don't need a change. That's not what this rule is necessarily talking about. That being said, guys, this is the most important rule. If you can leave here tonight and just think whenever you're in a time of desolation and you feel like sleeping in for mass, or you feel like eating that chocolate cake, or you feel like skipping that rosary, if you just remember rule five, then I have succeeded already. Just remember rule five, and then that will give you the strength to stay on those resolutions, and you're not going to end up turning away. You're going to end up continuing along that path to God, and what you'll know before you know it, you'll be in consolation. It'll be wonderful. Rule five. Tattoo it, make a t-shirt out of it, frame it, put it in your bedroom, I don't care. Whatever you do, remember rule five, which is in a time of desolation, never ever make a change but be firm and constant in the resolutions and determination in which one was the day preceding such desolation. That being said, let's see what rule six has to offer. The sixth rule. Although in desolation, we ought not to change our first resolutions, it is very helpful, intensely, to change ourselves against the same desolation as by insisting on more prayer, meditation, on much examination, and by giving ourselves more scope in some suitable way of doing penance. It is very helpful intensely to change ourselves against the same desolation. Guys, if rule five was all about what we can't do in desolation, rule six is all about what we can do and about what we can change. And it's not our resolutions, but rather it's ourselves against the desolation. How often is that not the case with us? How often do we lie to ourselves and believe that if only we want to get into consolation, all we need to do is do those ridiculous things like skip mass, like skip prayer, like skip the rosary, or like eat that chocolate cake. No, what St. Ignatius says is that if you have those temptations, the thing you need to change is not that proposal, but yourself. It's not the proposal, it's yourself. And it's kind of like, honestly, 
It's kind of like a football player. Imagine if you are a defensive player, an offensive player, and a guy is coming at you, full force, ready to charge at you. You've got one or two options. Either you can change your first proposal and quit playing the game of football, become a scaredy cat, and run away, in which case your team will lose in some form or fashion and give up lots of points, or you'll fail in some way, you might even get hurt. Or you can change yourself against the person and lean in for the hit. And I think you'll be surprised to find that every time Satan comes after us looking like a football player, that's like some big bag linebacker that's about to tear us apart, I think what we'll discover is that it's really just like the kicker coming after us. Not that intimidating and not that hard. He's actually surprisingly easy to resist when we are firm with him at the beginning. We'll get a little bit more into that. There's a rule about that later. But my point being is that if we really want to fight this desolation, it's not enough to passively pray that it just passes by. We can't just hold on to our first proposals and just, just sit there and just hope and pray that it just doesn't, that we're just no longer bothered by this. No, we have to orient ourselves against it. Lean into the hit and stop the oncoming attack. And that's exactly what St. Ignatius proposes us on how to do that. St. Ignatius teaches us, excuse me, how to do that with four ways. The first way is prayer. And the prayer is simple. Petition. Petition. Kind of like what we do at Mass right after the homily. Petition. Lord, help me get out of this mess. Plain and simple. Easy prayer. Anybody can do it. Lord, help me out of here. Petition God to save you from it. It's a great first step and it's a great opportunity to turn back to God and not just kind of believe the lie that you're separated from Him. The next is meditation. Meditation is all about sitting with the unbelievable fact that God loves you. A great way to do that is what we did last night during adoration. Whenever we sat back and thought about our consoling moments that the Lord has given us. I gave you an example of my ordination. We've all had moments like that. Moments where we receive genuine spiritual consolation that filled us with courage, with confidence, and experienced that beautiful love of God. What St. Ignatius encourages us to do here is to take time and meditate on that. Meditate on that beautiful truth. The next one, examination. And this is really quite simple. All examination is, is looking back at the desolation and asking the question, what led to this? When did this happen? Since when did I start getting in this odd funk? Where did I take the misstep into the bear trap? And why didn't I stay on the straight and narrow? That's what examination is. That's the third thing that St. Ignatius asks us to do. This is probably one of the most important things if we're ever really going to truly discern spirits, is examination. And we'll get a little bit more into that later on in the, in the, in the talk. The fourth thing is honestly my favorite thing and my absolute least favorite thing. And that is a suitable penance. St. Ignatius gives a fantastic suitable penance. And what he says is this, he uses this example. If any of you have ever made a holy hour, you know that probably about minute 15, 
sometimes things get a little dry. And you look at the Blessed Sacrament and you think, oh, Lord have mercy, I got another 45 minutes of this. What am I going to do? And you're sitting there and going, man, when is this going to end? What is going to happen? And if we don't reject that thought, what can happen is we can just end up pursuing that, that idea that, man, this has got to end soon. I can't do this anymore. There's no way I can make a whole hour. There's just no way. I mean, I've got groceries to go get. I've got these garments I've got to mend. I've got this job I've got to do. I've got to pick my kids up from soccer, even though I'm already 45 minutes early. Like, I don't know what to do. And then before you know it, instead of rejecting the idea, what we do is we leave 35 minutes early or after only 35 minutes of prayer, and we end up feeling pretty bad. We didn't complete the holy hour. We didn't do our proposal that we had made for ourselves whenever we were in consolation. And what St. Ignatius proposes, in my opinion, is the most brutal penance any man can ever propose on somebody who's thinking those thoughts. And what he says is that if you're experiencing desolation during a holy hour, if you're thinking there's no way I can make it through this, you know what you need to do? Stay five minutes after the hour is up. Let me tell you, that is hard. Because as it is, you want to call it at 55 minutes, 57 minutes. The idea of doing an hour, a holy hour, not just a holy hour, but a holy hour in five minutes, that's hard. But what I found, at least in my life, whenever I've actually done the penance, there's been many times where I've weaseled out where I haven't followed Rule 5. Shame on me, I know. But whenever I have actually done that suitable penance, those five minutes have been some of the most fruitful, rewarding minutes I've ever spent in time of the Blessed Sacrament. That's an example of a suitable penance. A penance that addresses the desolation head on. A penance that kind of looks like the football player and leans into the hit and doesn't allow the devil to bully us. That is what St. Ignatius is talking about whenever he's talking about a suitable penance. And that's the sixth rule. Sixth rule is very simple. In time of desolation, if you're going to change it all, change yourself. Don't change your proposals. On to the seventh rule. The seventh. Let him who is in desolation consider how the Lord has left him in trial in his natural powers in order to resist the different agitations and temptations of the enemy, since he can, with the divine help, which always remains to him, though he does not clearly perceive it. Because the Lord has taken from him his great fervor, great love, and intense grace, leaving him, however, grace enough for eternal salvation. It's a beautiful rule. Guys, if Rule 5 is all about telling us what not to do, if Rule 6 is all about telling us what to do, then Rule 7 is all about telling us what to think. And the, think, and the thought is this, to reconsider the desolation according to God's perspective, to realizing that it's God who's permitting this desolation. Ultimately, any act that Satan does on us, on us is permitted by God. God is giving us the opportunity to fight. God is giving us the opportunity to grow. And whenever we can remember that, that desolation is not suffering without a purpose, 
but rather a suffering with a truly deep meaning, a suffering to help us grow, then we will have more strength to fight it. We'll have more strength to go against it. Father Timothy Gallagher puts it best. He says, When humbly and courageously resisted, spiritual desolation becomes a crucial spiritual lesson, teaching hope and guiding the person towards spiritual maturity in ways that spiritual consolation alone could not accomplish. This is basically like a father allowing his son to fall as he's learning to walk. That is what desolation is, at least that's the purpose of it, teaching us how to walk in the spiritual life. And ultimately, what, this, what the desolation is always about is the enemy trying to get us to forget God. But if we can follow Rule 7 and remember that God is at work here, that this desolation is allowed by God, then we will surely have the strength to fight. Rule 8. The eighth rule. Let him who is in desolation labor to be in patience, which is contrary to the vexations which come to him, and let him think that he will soon be consoled, employed against the desolation, the devices, as is said in the sixth rule. Put it simply and quickly, rule eight is the rule of the marathon runner. Generally, every marathon runner, if you talk to him, will tell you that you hit a wall about mile 17. Even if you haven't run a marathon or run any type of race, you know that there's a wall that we generally hit. Or we just think, man, there is no way I can keep going. And then you resolve to keep going. You trudge, you trudge, you trudge. You think you get like a quarter mile down. Lo and behold, you went like five feet. That's basically what rule eight is reminding us of. The fact that, look, you're going to hit walls. You and I always hit walls in our spiritual life. These walls are going to be what make or break us. Just like the marathon runner has the opportunity or the choice to stop running when he begins to hit that wall, you and I have the choice to stop pursuing the Lord when we get that wall hit on us, that thing called desolation. But if we continue to run, like the marathon runner, then we will surely reach a great reward. And yet, what I love about this rule is that it reminds us that desolation is part of the spiritual life. At the end of the day, the demons are always working, and God is always working. So desolation will come. Father Timothy Gallagher says that desolation is as natural as rainy days. They're going to come in our lives. If we treat rainy days with dull gloom, then we'll never ever benefit from the fruits that actually rains down upon us. There's great fruits that you and I can uncover in desolation, but it only, co it only comes if we fight. It only comes if we go to war. And that is what Rule 8 is all about. Learning to fight through the pain. Learning fight, learn to fight through the desolation. Let's move on a little bit. We're, we're running a little bit lower on time. Rule nine. The ninth rule, there are three principal reasons which we find ourselves desolate. 
The first reason is because of our tepid lazy, because of our being tepid, lazy, or negligent in our spiritual exercises. And so through our faults, spiritual consolation withdraws from us. The second, to try and see how much we are and how much we let ourselves out in His service and praise without such great pay of consolation and great graces. The third, to give us true acquaintance and knowledge that we may interiorly feel that it is not ours to get or to keep great devotion, intense love, tears, or any other spiritual consolation, but that all is the gift and grace of God our Lord, and that we may not build a nest in a thing that is not ours, raising our intellect into some pride or vain glory, attributing to us devotion or the other things of the spiritual consolation. Put it simply, if Rule 7 reminds us that with all desolation, there's a purpose. Rule 9 tells us what that purpose could be, and it's threefold. On the one hand, you and I can experience desolation simply as a consequence for our negligence. Not waking up early in the morning to go to Mass. Not praying that rosary resolve to pray or eating that chocolate cake which we promised not to eat. That could very easily be a cause for desolation, a cause for a kind of spiritual sadness. And it's a just cause. We need consequences for our acts. We need, me, we need consequences for our actions. The second reason is a test. A test of our devotion to see how much we really love the Lord. And it's not so the Lord might know how much you and I really love Him, but so that we might realize how much we love the Lord. And the third, and this is the greatest reminder of all, and it's a reminder that consolation is not ours. We don't climb the ladder of consolation. We go toward God, no question. We orient our actions, we orient our lives toward God, but it's ultimately the choice of God to either give us consolation or permit desolation. And that's a freeing knowledge, which means if you ever experience desolation in your life, it's no time to panic. All it means is that God is permitting it to happen so that you and I might grow and you and I might learn that He is the giver of all gifts, including consolation. Now let's see what Rule 10 has to say. Rule 10. Let him who is in consolation think how he will be in desolation, which will come after, taking new strength for then. I like to call this rule the trolley car rule. Any of y'all ever lived on a trolley car? Excuse me, hopefully you never lived on one. Any of y'all ever ridden on a trolley car? What you'll notice is that there's a lot of fun you can have on a trolley car. Trolley car, if done rightly and if done prudently, can be a very great source of consolation. But if you and I are not paying attention to the driver, and especially if the driver ain't paying attention to the road, and he slams on the brakes or he turns really quickly, you and I will go flying. It's the same rules for spiritual discernment. 
Whenever in consolation, it's like we're on a trolley having a good time. But if we're not paying attention to the road, at least peripherally, if we're not looking at at least where the trolley car is going, where the stop signs are, where the red lights are, where they kind of, where there's a windy road, you and I might end up on the floor. That is what basically St. Ignatius is showing us. That if we're in consolation, that's not a time to sit back and relax necessarily. But it's a time to be attentively looking at the road. Because if we're looking at the road and we see a stop coming up, then we can plan accordingly. Grab the bar that's right next to us, brace ourselves for the stop, and keep going with our lives. Very easy. Minimal, minimal damage done. But if we don't see it coming, and the stop, the stop sign and the stop light hits us and takes us by surprise and we go tumbling on the ground, well, that'll at least, it'll, if it doesn't dampen our spirits, it'll at least give us a little bit more pain, and that stop will make us pay a lot more. You see what I'm saying? If we don't prepare for desolation, like we should prepare for a stop sign, we could end up on the ground. In the same way, riding a trolley car or a bus without paying attention to the turns in the road or the stops in the road could wind us up on the ground as well. It's a matter of preparation. And that is, in essence, the, the rule, the tenth rule, the trolley car rule. The eleventh rule. The eleventh rule is basically, the, uh, is very, very simple. It's this. Pride will go before the fall. If we're prideful, thinking that the consolation that we have is because of our actions, because we're great, because we're strong, then we'll inevitably fall. And if we're in desolation and we let it get us down, then what's going to end up happening is we're going to start despairing. And what St. Ignatius points out in the 11th rule, excuse me, I forgot to read it, is this. On the contrary, let him who is in desolation think that he can do much with the grace sufficient to resist all his enemies, taking strength in his Creator and Lord. In other words, don't let desolation get you discouraged. It's one thing to feel the Spirit pushing discouragement on us. It's another thing, it's an, excuse me, it's another thing to swallow that discouragement. You and I don't have to listen to the lies that he preaches to us. And that's what the 11th rule is all about. And yet, if we're in consolation, it's a time to thank God. It's not a time to, you know, really rest on our laurels. But look at God and say, Lord, thank you for this gift. I certainly did not earn it. The 12th rule is a long rule. And, quite honestly, it's a little politically incorrect. So I'm going to let you guys read it on your own. But what I call the 12th rule is the snowball rule or the whiny child rule. That one's a little bit more politically correct than what the 12th rule is. Like I said, I'll let you read that one on your own. The whiny child rule is basically this. I see a lot of y'all are maybe a little bit more experienced in life. Maybe you brought your kids to the grocery store. All right. And if you brought your kids to the grocery store, you know that grocers are very, very evil people. And what they'll do is they'll put the candy right there in line as you're sitting there waiting for all the little kids to look at. The Reese's peanut butter cups, the fruit gushers, all those delicious sweet treats, like the Hershey's kisses 
and all of the Twix bars, who I love Twixes and whenever I was young, or Kit Kats, oh man, anyway. And what these poor children have to do is look at this delicious candy as they sit in the shopping cart. And what do they do? They start bugging you. Mommy, mommy, can I have a Twix bar? And at that moment, you have two options. And you know these two options. You can either, uh, assuming you don't want them to have the Twix bar and you're assuming you want them to have their teeth whenever they grow up, you can say, uh, I'll think about it. Or you can say, no. Now let's go over these two options and play this, them out. If you say, uh, I'll think about it, well guess what? That child just smelled blood. Oh, he sees weakness and vulnerability. And what that means is he's coming after you. Please, I promise I'll do all my homework if I do that. If you gave me this Twix bar, please, I'll do this. And like makes all these unrealistic deals that he'll never ever actually fulfill. And before you know it, you have a terror on your hands. Because you're not really giving in, but you're not telling him no. And before you know it, by the end of the conversation, he's screaming, howling, and crying. And even if you don't give it to him, it's still a miserable time had by all, right? Even if you don't end up giving him the Twix bar, or you could, honestly, you could have just ended up giving it to him and just tell him, all right, be quiet, shut up. It's not a good time had by anybody. Or there's that second option. No, you're gonna eat whenever you get home. We got some dessert, we have ice cream. Save it for later. Well, at that moment, honestly, as a kid, he's gonna have to learn to go somewhere else and try and pick another battle and try and bug you on that. That's ultimately the whiny child rule. That's what rule 12 is all about. And basically what rule 12 summarizes is this. If you're experiencing temptation, if you're experiencing desolation, don't give the devil an inch. Don't go, well, that's not a bad idea. I didn't really think about it. I only got seven and a half hours of sleep, not eight. I probably need that extra half hour if I'm gonna be healthy, so I should probably skip mass. No, that's a perfect recipe to stay in bed and not actually get up and go to mass. My point being is never dialogue with the devil. That's what rule 12 is all about. If you stop, and another, another rule that you can maybe describe it as a snowball rule. I know we don't have snow, but I think we can maybe imagine. Whenever it comes to snowballs, if a snowball starts at the top of a mountain, it can be very, very small. You can stop it with a finger. No problem, done. But if you let that snowball roll down, and down, and down, and down, the bigger it's gonna get, and the harder it's gonna get to stop. To the point where if you wait too late, that snowball is gonna straight up run you over. You're not gonna stand a chance. It's the exact same thing with the devil. You and I don't stop it at the beginning, then we're in for a real fight, and we're gonna be in deep trouble. The third rule, the, the 13th rule, excuse me. This, put simply, it's what you could probably call the seducer rule. Any good seducer, not that I have any experience with this, but any seducer wants to keep this whole, his whole act silent and secret, not letting it get known. And if we play into that, play into that silent, secret tactics that he tries to use, then he can overcome us. 
Another way, to, maybe a seducer rule isn't the best word, rule for it. This is my first time teaching this. Maybe the cowardly rule is the best rule. Cowards in general operate under secrecy, trying to work deals behind your back, trying to keep things down low, secret, making things like acts like it's not really that big of a deal. Whether it's cheating in a game or cheating on a test, that's how cowards generally work. And that's how Satan works. Cowardly, quietly, secretly, under wraps, because he knows that he can't beat us if we have the resolve against him. And so basically, what St. Ignatius says is that if you, see the, if you see Satan working in secret, call him out. Call him out. Kind of be like the, the mom in, in the 12th rule. Tell him, no, we're not doing this. And bring it to the light. If you're experiencing serious desolation, do not be afraid to go and tell somebody. Yeah, you know, I'm really thinking about eating that chocolate cake. Boy, I really don't really feel like going to Mass today. Uh, what do you think? And just like, just talk it out. And what you'll find pretty quickly is that desolation can dissipate really quickly. And the 14th rule, the final rule. You can call this, I guess you can call this the Taliban rule, if you will. Basically, it's, a mil it's, a, it's all about a weaker power seeking to overthrow a stronger power. It's a military tactic. And so what basically St. Ignatius says is that you and I are like castles. We are castles. And Satan is like an enemy, like kind of like the Taliban or like a, a barbarian tribe or a chieftain or whatever. I mean, pick a, any military guy trying to overthrow a castle. If he has any common sense at all, he's not going to attack the castle at its strongest point. That's not going to happen. It makes no sense from a military perspective. Instead, he's going to go after the weakest point. Guys, it's no different in our lives. Whenever Satan attacks, he's going to attack at our weakest point. He's going to look for the times where you've fallen, and he's going to go after that. Our wounds, our hurts, our whatever. And that's what he's going to exploit. That's how Satan works. He's a coward. Now that being said, these are the 14 rules of discernment. And I'm running low on time. So let's go on ahead and wrap this up. What do we now have are 14 rules of discernment. 14 rules in which you and I can fight the devil and grow the kingdom of, of light, grow the kingdom of God, so the world might know how truly precious the Lord is and how he seeks to save us. And so what I want each and every one of us to be able to do is to apply these rules in our daily life. And so I want to just give you three basic suggestions so this Lenten mission doesn't go to waste. The first one, I suggest put the rules in a place where you can read them. Don't throw these away, but rather once a week, once every two weeks, once a month or so, pick them up, take a look, go over them, see how they work in your lives. It's amazing what great spiritual reading just these simple rules of discernment are. It can be very, very handy and very, very confidence-building, seeing there are tactics to fight desolation. The second idea is this. Examine your life. Examine your conscience. St. Ignatius suggests we do this twice a day. And he says this is the most important thing you and I can do in our spiritual life. And what he suggests is this. Do three things whenever we do our examination. 
Look first at our spiritual consolations that we received for that day up until that point. Then after we've rested in those spiritual consolations that God has given us, then move on to our spiritual desolations. Where has Satan tried to work at us? Where has the evil spirit tried to deceive us? Where has he tried to discourage us? And our third point in this, in, in this examine prayer is resolve to fight that desolation. See where he's working and counteract him. See where he's working and orient yourself against him. Don't change your proposals, but change your heart. Change your heart to go after that. Notice whenever I said the examine prayer, I said spiritual consolations and spiritual desolations. That's key. It can be very, very easy to devolve into non-spiritual consolations and non-spiritual desolation. Just focus on that. And I want to tell you that's fine, but that's not going to be nearly as fruitful as trying to see how God is working in our lives. I noticed that today, actually, whenever I was doing my, my prayer. Because recently I've been noticing in my own examined prayer that things just haven't been quite the same. And it was for that reason. I went back and looked at my examined prayers over the past several years. And what my examined prayers have become is a lot more of just day reviews. I did this today, I did this today, oh, this is really cool, this is really cool, this is really cool. That's surface level, guys. That is unacceptable. Because, it, and I don't want to say it's unacceptable, that makes it sound like there's a test here. But it's not going to bear much fruit. Certainly not spiritual fruit. If you and I really want to do the examination right, we have to go deeper. And look to see how God is working in us. And the final thing isn't really so much a practical thing as just a word of encouragement. Guys, you and I are baptized sons and daughters of God. Which means, put it plain and simply, Satan has no power to bully you. None whatsoever. You are in the image of God. Whenever Satan looks at you, he sees an image of Jesus Christ. But the fact of the matter is, even though Satan sees an image of Jesus, that never ever stops him from tempting Jesus. We see that happen in the desert. But if there is anything that Jesus teaches us in the desert, if there's anything that St. Ignatius teaches us in these 14 rules of discernment, is that you and I don't just have a fighting chance. You and I are geared to victory. Because you and I stand with the living God. Whenever we fight this fight, we are not doing this alone. We're not by ourselves on an island somewhere. It's not just us. No, my friends, you and I have been conformed to the person of Jesus Christ. And He, more than anybody, is willing and ready to work with you and with me to dwell firmly and finally in the kingdom of heaven. God bless you.